Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. My name is Ryan and this is the show where I talk to developers, programmers, and coders of all types who are in business for themselves and I try to figure out how they got to where they are. So if you're a coder who wants to get into business or maybe if you're already in business and you want to see where to go next, then hopefully this show is of value to you. This is episode one with Adam Wadden. My guest today is Adam Wadden. Adam is a full stack developer and entrepreneur from Canada. He's an active contributor to the Laravel and Vue communities, the host of the full stack radio podcast and the creator of Tailwind CSS. He runs his own business, creating books and courses for other developers full time. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So you and I met back in 2017 at the Craft and Commerce uh, Conference in Boise, Idaho, and I got to know you a bit there. Um, wondering if you could give maybe just everybody who's listening a bit more of your backstory. Yeah, I mean, what do you want to know? So um, how'd you get started as a programmer and uh, kind of when did that start rolling for you? So um, I think my very first exposure to programming and different kind of there's a couple different origin stories that come to mind and I can never really piece together what happened first but when I was in like elementary school um we used to do a bunch of screwing around in like hypercard on the max at school making little games and stuff and that's like one place where I, I kind of got exposed to the idea of programming and learning how to make the computer do stuff for you which was pretty cool um i also like picked up cubasic by myself one summer when i was maybe 10 years old because i found this tutorial on the internet about how to make your own pro wrestling simulator i was like this sounds awesome because i was obsessed with pro wrestling as a kid and i was always downloading all these simulators so um i kind of started messing around with this like tutorial and and cubasic and kind of learning how to do that and that kind of sent me down reading all these other QBasic tutorials and eventually getting into stuff like um, trying to make like little RPG engines in QBasic and stuff. There was all these cool tutorials for doing these like these like tiling engines and stuff like that, which was kind of neat. Um, and then I also just got into web development just because I loved to browse the internet and I wanted to learn how to make my own websites. And that was when I was, you know, probably 11 or 12, something like that too. Um, so that's kind of like, I just kind of screwed around with a bunch of different stuff that I just kind of got exposed to just kind of by chance and, and found it fun and rewarding. Um, eventually, uh, you know, in high school we had computer programming courses. So I took all the ones that I could, um, went to, the University of Wilfrid Laurier and uh, in Waterloo, Ontario for uh, computer science. I only went for one semester though, and then dropped out because I hated university. <laughs> um, and uh, after that, I kind of didn't really program for, for like six years or eh, probably like four or five years. And then um, I just kind of like went into the workforce and was doing some stuff up in the oil sands in Alberta, some different sort of office stuff that I just kind of landed in because I had friends up there and, um, eventually kind of business got slow up there and they laid a bunch of people off and I came home and decided I want to start a, uh, business recording bands because I've been a musician my whole life and I've always loved recording my own stuff. And I thought it'd be fun to open a little home studio and start recording local bands. So 
From there, I started playing with this software called Reaper, which I still use to this day to record my podcast and edit screencasts and stuff like that. And um, one of the things I discovered about it is that it's a really, really hackable um, piece of software. So you can write your own extensions for it and Python or Lua or C++. And the API they expose is like really, really comprehensive. So you can like basically add brand new features to the software that feel like they're native features in a lot of ways. So I had a bunch of ideas for things that I wanted to improve about the software and started tinkering with Python and sort of teaching that to myself. And, um, once I started kind of getting into that, I remembered how much I liked programming, uh, because I hadn't done it in a few years. And, um, yeah, I basically was spending more time like creating features for this tool than I was actually recording bands and stuff anymore. So eventually I decided to go back to school. And this time I went to Conestoga College for software engineering. And I did like two years of that. And then I got a job as a web developer. And that's kind of the whole story. Very cool. Uh, so you're on your own now. I mean, you're doing software development uh, for yourself. You're, you're your own boss. You, um, mm-hmm. you know, I know you put out courses and products and that's, uh, that's how you make a living. How long did you work as a developer for other companies, though, before you went into business for yourself? So I think I worked for about f- four years at, at three different consulting companies before I released my first book and um, I kind of put that book together just because I've always wanted to make some sort of, you know, put a bunch of ideas into like a nicely formatted and polished like book and sell it on the internet. Like that's kind of sounded like a cool thing to do. I didn't really go into it with the intention of that becoming my career, Um, but I put it out and it did. It was a lot more successful than I, I expected. Um, so I just kind of jumped on the opportunity to, to go solo and just work on my own stuff when that happened. Gotcha. That's really cool. So would you say it was kind of a happy accident almost that you almost fell into when you started to go it on your own? Was it, uh, you were saying that the, the results of that first product were, were more than you expected. Um, were you, were you expecting, I guess, to be still be working as a developer for a company, uh, beyond that? Yeah, that was uh, my expectation. Like, um, I, I kind of did everything that I could to make the the book launch successful. And maybe that's something we can talk about in more detail too. But, um, even kind of trying to do everything right in terms of building an audience around it and collecting emails and promoting it and stuff, I thought maybe I would make over the lifetime of the product, maybe like 15 or $20,000. And that would be like a nice, just you know, it's like getting a nice huge Christmas bonus or something. It's not enough that you're going to like quit your job or anything, but it's enough that you can like, maybe I could go pay off my student loans or uh, pay off our car or, you know, just like some sizable chunk of money that would be like enough to do something significant with, but not enough to like, okay, this is what I'm going to do for a living now. Um, so when it ended up doing, you know, quite a bit better than I expected, that was uh, a pleasant surprise for sure. That's great. And the transition I'm curious about from your full-time job into, uh, you know, full-time on your own, what was your mindset going into that? I mean, was it, was it a difficult decision? Was it pretty easy now that you saw your, your book was selling well, or was it, were you still hesitant going into that decision? Um, it was a little bit of hard for sure, um, to, to make the decision to kind of make the leap. Um, there was a couple 
factors that that made it a little bit easier. Um, the first one is that when I wrote the book, the book was sort of my 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 backup. Well, not sorry, not backup plan, but it was sort of like it wasn't my my first idea for like a, a training product like that. I wanted to make like originally I wanted to write a book on testing for PHP developers. And then I thought maybe I'll make a video course on testing for PHP developers, but it was going to be, it was like a pretty ambitious idea and it was going to be really hard to create that on like an evenings and weekends sort of schedule. And then uh, I met with a buddy of mine who creates the same sort of products like courses for audio engineers that I kind of got to know when I was running the studio. And uh, he suggested like, why don't you just try and come up with like a really, really, really small idea, something that you know you can for sure do in the evenings and weekends and just put it out there and see how it goes and see if, you know, see if you enjoy making that sort of stuff and, and kind of trying to sell products on the internet. So that's when I came up with the idea to do this, this book, which originally I had planned it to be like a really short little kind of like pocket guide to the particular topic, which was basically um, how to use like collection pipeline programming for PHP developers, how to refactor like complex loops and conditionals into like stuff that uses like map reduce and filter and, you know, some of the more obscure um, collection transformations as well. So I thought maybe I'd put together this little pocket guide. Maybe it would be like a 40 to 50 page, like PDF with some of my favorite ways that you could use these ideas to solve different problems. And that sounded like a really finishable project. You know what I mean? I thought, Oh yeah, I can just hack on this evenings and weekends for two or three weeks and then put it out, sell it for like 10 bucks or something like that. And just kind of get my feet wet in this whole world of trying to sell stuff on the internet. Um, so that was kind of the only reason that I had the, uh, confidence to even like try and tackle the project. Cause I had planned for it to be like a pretty small scope thing as I got into it and actually started working on it. It just ended up growing and being more comprehensive and bigger than I expected. Um, if I had known that that's what I was going to be making up front, I probably would have been too intimidated or not felt like I had the time to do it and wouldn't have done it. So I kind of just kind of worked out in that sense. But, um, all that to say, like, um, the, I put that out and then because I knew that like the I thing I really wanted to make was this testing course and, I had a suspicion that the testing course would do better than the book did because I think it's just a topic that more people are really interested in getting better at. I thought, you know, this book has done well enough that I could buy my time for probably nine months to a year. Um, I'm probably never going to get an opportunity like this again. So I should just leave my job and try and get this course done, knowing that I'll have all the time in the world to actually work on it and not having to split my time between my regular job and then doing that sort of thing in evenings and weekends. So that was kind of the motivation for, for, you know, thinking, okay, well, if I leave my job, I'll get the opportunity to do this. I didn't leave thinking, Oh, I'm just going to live off this book revenue forever, or I have to come up with another idea. The only reason I had the confidence to do it is because I kind of knew I had this other thing sort of in the pipeline that I really wanted to to do next. Yeah. And you kind of, you, you gave, you were giving yourself some runway there too, right? You weren't needing to rely on the hope of income to support yourself as you went week by week. You, you had, totally. you had some runway yeah. set up for yourself. And then worst case scenario, you know, I could have just got another job because it's not like, 
you know, we're fortunate enough to be in an industry where, um, it's not too hard to find, uh, you know, a position as a software developer somewhere. So I figured worst case scenario, if it doesn't work out, I can always just go back and get a programming job. But, uh, thought I would take the chance and see how it worked out. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just for everybody listening, the, that first book you're talking about, that's refactoring to collections. Um, and we'll link that up, but, uh, that was your, your very first product. Was there anything before that? There was nothing before that, even on a smaller scale. That was kind of the, your first go, I suppose. I had like a couple of false starts on different ideas, but that was the first thing that I ever, ever actually finished and put out for people to actually pay money for on the internet. Gotcha. So it's really interesting that you, like you were saying, the reason you were able to get to a product of the size that refactoring to collections is, um, is kind of because it sounds like almost because you tricked yourself in some way. You, you went into it st- thinking that the scope was much smaller and it ended up being a larger, uh, a larger product. I mean, it's a book, you've got, uh, you've got videos along with it. Um, a lot of material, you've got source code that people can reference. So much larger in scope. Do you, is that a tactic that you have used for your other products at all, you know, going into it, almost tricking yourself saying, I'll keep it to this sort of size. Meanwhile, knowing that it might get bigger by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I actually try pretty hard to work the opposite way now because I've since learned that like my natural tendency is to go into something with one idea and then have it kind of balloon in scope into something that is like, much more ambitious or much more time consuming than I originally intended. And that worked to my advantage with the collections book because that let me create a product that was worth more money, right? So I could charge more for it and actually make a more meaningful amount of money on the launch. Um, and I, I don't know how, but like I, I only worked on the book from like February to May uh, in evenings and weekends. I didn't have a kid at the time, which made it a lot easier. Um, but uh, I was still able to put together something pretty big in, in that amount of time. So um, nowadays, I, I try to be mindful of the fact that, yeah, the tendency is for me to come up with an idea. I think it's going to take X amount of time and then it actually takes way, way, way longer. So I try to be a lot more deliberate about making sure that I have control of the scope and can figure out ways to make the project smaller if, if I need to. Um, and we can kind of talk about the next product that I put out maybe because that kind of story is what led me to really want to never make the mistake of getting in over my head again. Yeah, um, that's, that's, why don't we go there? That's uh, like, are you talking about, uh, uh, refactoring UI? Right uh, Tester and Laravel was the second one. And okay, that was so the, the one that, uh, that was kind of the thing I wanted to make from day one, but decided to do this refactoring to collections book instead. Cause it seemed like a good way to get my feet wet. So, um, with the test room and Laravel course, I had this idea to make a course on test room development for Laravel developers that instead of being structured like a lot of other training materials out there where it's like very topic focused, like here's how you test this. Here's how you test this. Here's how you test this. My experience with that sort of content was that it left like really serious gaps in your knowledge in terms of how to actually do this in the real world with a real piece of software so i thought wouldn't it be cool if i put together like a course that shows you how to build an app from an empty file 
to a real app and document the whole process and TDD the whole thing. So there's no like missing steps. There's no like, okay, yeah, you learned how to test sending email and you learned how to test firing an event, but you never really got to experience like, well, what does it look like when you need to add this new feature and your existing design doesn't support it and you need to refactor, but keep the tests passing. And you know what I mean? Like there's all this workflow stuff. Um, so I thought let's, maybe I can put together a product that people can watch this series and sort of learn, here's how to build an app from beginning to end. We're going to write tests first for the whole thing and any kind of beasts that we encounter along the way, we will figure out how to get past. And, um, it should hopefully be a good representation of what it looks like to do this stuff in the real world in a real practical sense. Um, so I thought that was a good idea. I'm still, still think it's a good idea, but what that actually meant is, um, at the end of the day, after I finished it and I'll talk a little bit more about what went into finishing it, but it ended up being like 160 screencasts and it was like 22 or 23 hours of content, which that sounds like a lot of video, but 23 hours doesn't sound like a lot of time to build an entire app with TDD. You know what I mean? So like when you really think about it, it's like, okay, so that's like two and a half work days of building an app from scratch and we managed to get to a whole app. That sounds like a, a short period of time to build an app, but a lot of time for a video series. And in hindsight, I should have realized like to build an app from start to finish with TDD, even a really simple app, if it's going to be representative of a real world application where it's going to have multiple features and interact with different APIs and stuff, if you were going to sit down and build that just by yourself, that would probably be a week or two of work at least add on top of that, the fact that you're trying to document the whole process and walk through it at a very reasonable pace where you're explaining everything that you're going to do. Of course, it's going to be like a huge thing. Um, so I worked on this, on that course for, for quite a while before kind of making it available for sale. I think I, I sort of like released it in November, but, but what I ended up doing is I'm um, like beginning of November came around or second week of November came around and I had this internal deadline in my head. It was like, I'm going to put this out November 29th, I think was the date because I didn't want to release it too close to Christmas. And, um, I got to that point and I was like, man, I'm only like a quarter of the way through this, or maybe not even, how am I going to get all the rest of this stuff done by the end of the month? And my options were either like push the deadline back and then just like work on it forever or kind of do like an early access release, release all the content that I have now, give people a good price and then just put out new content every week until we kind of finish the app and the course was done. So I opted to release it early and um, the f because of that, I kind of got myself into the situation where I couldn't change my mind about any of the content that was going to be in the course because people had already given me money for like a course outline that I had promised. You know what I mean? And what happened is that all that content ended up being like what I, what I expected in my head. Okay. I'll be able to get through this in a 15 minute screencast ended up being like five, 10 minute screencasts and everything was like that. And it just kept growing and taking longer and longer to get through it. So if I hadn't released it early, I would have figured out a way to make it smaller. You know what I mean? So that I could have got it done faster, but because I, I didn't and I had to deliver on everything. Um, it ended up taking me like just over a year. I think it was 13 months of working on it until the, all the videos were done and I could finally say, okay, like finally the whole thing is finished. So I released that in November, 2016. And then like the final video 
came out like January, 2018. So all of 2017, I was working on that. And that sort of was rough because, um, there's also this like really rough burnout element with that, right? You're working on the exact same thing and just creating new videos and churning out new content for a year. It's like, how do you, it's really hard to like maintain the motivation to, to kind of be working on it at the fastest pace possible. So I kind of just ended up in a bit of a funk where it's like, I, I had like a minimum in my head of like, okay, as long as I get like one module done a week or every two weeks, then I can spend some time on other stuff too. But I still always felt guilty about working on anything that wasn't the course because people had already paid for it and I needed to get it out. So, um, that's where I kind of just like learned this lesson of like, I need to, I need to make sure that I'm always in control of the scope of these projects because everything always ends up being bigger than you expect. And for me, by pre-selling access to it, I sort of locked myself into this position where I couldn't, I couldn't flex the content or remove certain things or whatever. And, um, and that just made it like a really, really hard year. So since then I've been very careful about making sure that I don't, uh, get myself into a position like that where I don't have control over, you know, what the ultimate product is going to end up being all the way through the process. I'm curious in that scenario, um, you know, do you think if you had, you know, you, you pre-sold it, you had all this, this promise you had to deliver on, you said, um, a couple of minutes back that, that, you know, if, if you had set the deadline, kind of a hard deadline, you, you would have found a way to, to get the content in there, um, before pre-sale. Do you think if you looking back, if you had set some kind of, you know, maybe arbitrary deadline, either for yourself or, you know, a deadline that you promised to your customers, do you think you still would have been able to find a way to sort of finagle things together such that you wouldn't have taken that whole year? It's hard to say. I think um, I think what I ended up with, I'm really happy with. And I think that is like in terms of what my original goal was. I'm glad it went the way it did because like I delivered on what my original vision was in terms of actually building the entire thing and documenting it. I think like the the takeaway is now I understand why most training material isn't structured that way because you end up with this really huge, um, you know, courses that are, uh, first of all, a huge investment to make. Um, and also very difficult for most people to find the time to get all, get through all the content. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to find 22 hours to work your way. Well, I was curious about something like that for, for that course. Do do you have a sense of how much of the course people actually complete where they get to before they sort of taper off? Um, I have the ability to get that information, but I don't have it offhand. So, um, it's one thing I'm always curious about, you know, I, I think there's a tendency for people who buy courses to either, you know, buy them, with the intent to, to do them at some point in the future. And maybe they never actually get around yeah. to, to completing the course or they'll get through maybe a quarter of it or a half of the course and then, and then stop. Um, so with a course of that length, you know, I'm curious, um, I'm curious as to, to how much of the course actually gets complete. But, um, you know, I think I, I would, I would suspect that it would be the case that if you have a shorter course, you've got a higher likelihood that people are going to go from start to finish, um, with a course of yeah. uh, that much length, it's, uh, it's probably the case. I, I would think that people would taper off at some point. Yeah. It's, it's tricky because it's, um, I think as a consumer, you, uh, 
in a perfect world, you, you kind of crave really comprehensive and like deep content. You want to feel like you're getting as much for your money as possible. But the reality is that most people won't actually work through all that content. Um, and it's much better for the customer if you can deliver as much value as possible and something as dense as possible, um, because then they'll actually be able to get through it. So even if like working through the whole comprehensive thing might be like, they might learn more doing that. It's not really a decision between like, are they going to go through the 160 video course or are they going to go through the 25 video course? It's really, they either do the 25 video course or they don't watch the course at all. Like that's what they, that's the actual behavior that really ends up happening. Like I just looking at some quick data here. Um, it looks like 300 people have watched the final video from the course like all the way from start to finish and that's out of 3,864 people who purchased the course so that's like less than 10 percent of people actually watched every single video right um so yeah Gotcha. Okay. You know, I'd love to chat a bit about, um, your, maybe your process for, for coming up with ideas for courses, right? Because you've done a few different courses now. How do you, I guess, come up with the idea? How does it, how do you get inspired to, to write a book or, or do a screencast course on a particular topic? Um, is it something that you meditate on for a while before you, you make a final decision and sort of, how do you, I guess, how do you get a sense from the market too, about what it is that's going to be of interest, what it is that's going to sell? Yeah. So, um, for me, it's mostly based on just like what, what's interesting to me. And I know that's not like a surefire guaranteed formula for everybody, but it's worked out well enough for me. So I guess, um, in general, I must be a pretty decent representation of my own audience in terms of like what people are excited about. So with the collections book, for example, I remember like the first day where I learned what array map did. And I was like, Whoa, like I've written that same five line function where you're just like result equals empty array for each item in this list add a new entry to the result array that is some transformed version where you're doing the exact same transformation on every one and then return the result. It was like, whoa, there's like an operation for that. And um, then I started learning about like reduce and filter and uh, think even things like each cons, which is like a cooler one from Ruby or like chunk and, and all these just like interesting ways that people had come up with to like take some like common pattern but extracted into something and the secret sauce basically to all these things is like when you have first class functions, you can do so much more in terms of what you can actually create abstractions around. And, and that was like really exciting to me when I like started learning about that. And, um, so I could just, just went really deep on that learning everything I could about it. Cause I, I just found it so like fun and rewarding to figure out how to refactor the sort of code I would have written before into these cool, like functional pipelines. And, um, something I've always done is just tried to share the things that I'm doing or the things that I'm excited about with, you know, the communities I'm involved in. So for the programming world, I think Twitter is probably the place where most of the discussions happen at like a very large scale. Anyways, I know there's like subreddits and some communities have forums and stuff, but I think in general, Twitter is like the developer, social hub, you know? So, 
since I'm on Twitter to hang out with other developers and talk to other developers, it was just natural to me to start sharing, like, like check out this, like just refactor this piece of code to this, like this is kind of neat. Right. And, um, that's sort of how I validate the ideas too. And not even in a super intentional way, but that's when I start to notice like what ideas are resonating with people and what aren't. So when I noticed like people were like seeing these little snippets, I'd be posting about some cool refactoring I did using some collection transformation. Um, I'd see people kind of like liking them or retweeting them or commenting on them. Eventually it got to the point where people would be asking me like, Hey, how can I like refactor this using these ideas? And, um, that's when I kind of realized, Hey, like maybe I could create like a product around something like this because I can already see that other people are excited about it too. Um, so in general, like the process is do my regular work program stuff, build cool stuff. And when I know, learn something new myself that I'm excited about, especially if I stay excited about it for a long period of time, just share what I'm learning with my audience and with the community. And if other people seem to care about it, which I'll just kind of notice without having to really be super intentional about it, then maybe that's a good idea for a product. And it was the same with like the TDD stuff. Like TDD, I think is just a topic that it just sounds so, um, it's like so seductive, right? It's like, there's like a way that like you can write your code by just like writing these tests and then that's going to like guide your implementation and, um, you'll end up with like much better code. And it's just like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Like I want to learn how to do that. And I was trying my hardest to learn it and in a really practical way. And I felt like there was a lot of, um, stuff that I either had to learn myself or piece together from various resources and other communities. And, um, it just seemed like, you know what, like maybe I can take everything that I've learned about this stuff and kind of put it all together into like the resource that I wish I had had when I was trying to learn this. And because just like with the collection stuff, as I was sharing what I was learning about TDD and stuff on Twitter and, you know, wherever else I was talking to other developers, I noticed that people were digging it. Then it seemed like, okay, there's like a, an opportunity to make something for this. And then the next product I did was this advanced view component design course. And that came from the same thing. I saw this library that uh, Ken C. Dodds put out called Downshift, which was like a uh, a library for creating like a sort of like autocomplete dropdown components, but it didn't render any HTML. It was like purely behavioral. And that was fascinating to me. It was like, how do you even make a component that like doesn't have any HTML? And I learned about all these patterns like render props and stuff. And I was like, Whoa, this is awesome. Like there's so much potential here. So I started exploring what it would look like to apply some of those same ideas with view and different problems you could solve and sharing that stuff on Twitter. I gave a conference talk about it and kind of gauged a reaction from there. And then I decided, you know what, maybe I can put together a video series that kind of teaches this stuff in depth too. And that worked out too. So that's kind of been like the process for me. It's just no, Notice something I'm excited about, find out if other people are excited about it just by sharing what I'm doing. And then, uh, if it seems like it's worth creating a product around it, then make some plans to turn it into, you know, some sort of product. Yeah, that's really cool. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, 
I've got a product out that is, uh, it's about security and Angular applications in particular. And a lot of the impetus for me to go ahead and create that product was because I was actually getting a little bit sick of answering the same questions over and over. Um, I spent some time working for a company called Auth0, where we did all sorts of stuff around authentication and identity. And my attachment to that company made me, I guess, the target more or less for all sorts of questions around, you know, how, how to do authentication in in an Angular application, et cetera. And so I found myself just over and over again answering these questions. And so, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to do some kind of product and, you know, I was thinking of all sorts of ideas, but I said, you know what, there's, there's all sorts of people that are asking me this particular things on this particular topic all the time. Um, I, I have a bit of a, a proven market in that sense, because there's like, you know, there's people that, that want that info who, um, who I know have, have paid to get that information from elsewhere. Why not create a product that's specific to their needs that caters to them and offer it that way. So it sounds like, you know, much like, uh, much like how I approach it, there's, there's this sense that you got where you're, you, you tested the water somewhat, you saw that there was a bit of a reaction, that there was a bit of a, a desire to, um, to, to want the information that you were putting out there. I'm curious about whether or not you got a good sense of whether people would pay for that, uh, information though, or, or how you think about that, how you, how you gauge whether or not people are going to be willing to hand over their money for the information that you're providing. Yeah. So I think like the conventional, maybe it's not the conventional wisdom, but like the advice that you hear, the the kind of snippet that people say all the time is you don't know that someone's going to pay for something until they actually pay for it, right? Like if you have an idea for something, you can't just go out to someone and say like, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Because everyone will say, yeah, that's a good idea. You have to say, okay, um, can you give me your credit card so I can charge it for what I'm going to charge for this product? And that's when you'll know if like they actually want to pay money for it or whatever. That's what, that's what people say. Um, so I think like one approach, right. Is to, is to do like a pre-sale sort of thing where you can say like, Hey, I'm planning to make this thing. Um, if you pay now, you'll get like a discount and you can use that information to sort of validate, like maybe 50 people pre-buy something before you've even started working on it. Or maybe you just put together like one example chapter from a book or something to kind of give people an idea of what you're doing. And you can use that to decide, okay, should I actually make this whole thing? If like only three people pre or pre-buy, maybe that means you just refund them all and say, okay, well, this obviously wasn't going to work out as an idea or whatever. Um, for me, I have never really taken like that approach directly where I actually ask for people's money before I start working on anything. Um, but what I have done to kind of validate that people actually want the product or will pay for the product is whenever I know I'm going to make something, I always throw up a landing page that kind of explains what the product is and make, you know, it's clear like, Hey, I have this idea for a paid course or a paid book, something that's going to cost money. If you are interested in buying it, like enter your email and I'll keep you updated as I work on it. And that's not quite as concrete as people actually giving you money, right? But it is like a pretty good proxy for whether people are willing to pay because no one's going to sign up for information about a paid product if they literally don't care at all about ever buying it. You know what I mean? Um, so I've kind of used that to make sure that's, that's always kind of been like my final step in validating something. Usually I have a pretty good sense already because I've been 
noticing people are excited about the same ideas I'm sharing or asking me questions about it or whatever. Um, so that's kind of the final piece where it's like, okay, well, I have this idea for this thing. Sign up if you're interested. And as long as you get, you know, a few, probably, probably realistically a few hundred people signing up, then, you know, you have a pretty good shot at it being something worth doing. Um, yeah. So that's kind of been what I've done to validate that people are actually interested in paying money for something that, that helps them learn some particular topic. I know that both of us, um, we, we use the approach of, uh, marketing to an email list to sell Mm. our products. Um, wondering if you can chat a bit about that, what your approach is in particular, um, maybe tools you use and, um, maybe, maybe some ways that you go about growing your list. Sure. So, um, I don't think I am the best email marketer in the world, I guess, or the best like newsletter runner, mailing list runner, (laughs) because most of like, I don't really have like a traditional mailing list or newsletter. Like a lot of people do where they just get people to sort of sign up because they're interested in what that person has to say or like what new content that person's creating. And a lot of people will grow a list that way and just kind of interact with their their audience through there and share useful information and stuff like that. And then once they have an idea for a product, they'll sort of announce the product to the list and, you know, kind of work that way for me. I don't really have like one list per se. I have a convert kit account that has a bunch of subscribers in it, but everything is really just separate segments where it's like the only reason people sign up for anything for me is because they're interested in buying a product. So it's like, here's the people who said they were interested in my view course. Here's the people who said they're interested in my TDD course. Here's the people who said they were interested in the collections book um, or whatever. So my list really is only people who have ever explicitly expressed interest in, in buying something. I don't really collect people's email addresses for any reason other than to be able to contact them when I'm releasing whatever the thing is that um, I'm selling in terms of like building the list. I do still collect emails for like all those products, but it's sort of transitioned into instead of being like a pre-launch list now where it's like sign up to get information about the the course or whatever um, and get updates as I work on it. It's like enter email and I'll send you like two free chapters from the book or I'll send you a couple free videos from the course. And that's kind of like they're, they're sort of paying for that sample with their email in exchange for me being able to like contact them if I run a sale or something like that. Um, you know, months down the road or whatever. Um, so yeah, I use convert kit for everything. I don't do a ton of really sophisticated stuff with it. I mostly do broadcast emails and then I have some automation set up for my products that are already released. So when someone signs up for previews of my testing course, for example, they get dropped into like a pretty simple sequence where they get a couple previews on the first day. A few days later, I'll send them a couple more previews on the course just so I have a, a few different contact points with them. And because so many people just delete emails, you know what I mean? So I mean, it's good if you can share value with someone multiple times. I think that increases your odds of them actually like picking up the product. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, I just use ConvertKit for just those simple automations for people who want free previews of the products when they sign up on any of the landing pages. And then to just do broadcast emails to people who have signed up for maybe like a new product that's not actually out yet. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the way that I use my list anyways. Gotcha. Um, you know, something that at least I've heard a lot and I, I guess I've experienced 
um, you know, myself is that that Twitter, well, it's a good place to meet to talk about programming topics, etc. It's not the best platform to market on, you know, it's not the best way to sell a product. Would you, mm-hmm. would you agree with that? Or is it has it been useful for you? I mean, it has been useful for me, but I don't know if it's been that useful as like a platform for like really direct marketing. I think like, I think like marketing is a broader term than a lot of people think of it as. Like, I think a lot of people think associate marketing with advertising in their head as the the same thing, but really like anything you're doing to, to demonstrate to people that you know a lot about something that they're interested in and that they should trust you and that there's something they can learn from you is marketing um, and growing your market and understanding your market and getting connected to your market. So Twitter has been very effective for me in terms of growing my audience, which is marketing for me. Um, But in terms of like, if I was just going to release a new product um, and I announced it to Twitter and didn't have an email list to announce it to, I'm pretty sure it would do, it wouldn't succeed even close to the same level of magnitude as it would by having a, a dedicated email list where I can actually push information to someone because something like Twitter is so passive. I think like the stats or something like, um, for everything you ever like tweet on Twitter, only maybe 5% of your audience will ever actually see that tweet, you know? Um, so I'd love to move on to your latest product, which, uh, I am a happy purchaser of refactoring cool. UI. Thank you. It's, uh, I, it was, it was a great read. I sat down, I, I think it was over the course of maybe two days that I, I read through the thing and, um, I very much enjoyed it. I think it's going to be really helpful in my development, bringing some fresh design to, uh, to my applications. Um, cool. for this one, you worked with uh, a co-author. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that went maybe how it differed from working on things uh, yourself some of the challenges you hit uh, with it and so on yeah so um refactoring ui is like a book plus video series plus a bunch of additional resources that we kind of put together um me and my friend steve shoger uh to sort of help developers get better at design and and sort of with the goal of um giving people the tools that they need to if they have an idea for a side project make it look good without always having to be relying on like that one design friend that sometimes will like give you their input, but you kind of feel like you're always nagging them or whatever. You know what I mean? That's kind of the image I have in my head anyways. Um, so, uh, I've known Steve for years. Um, and we've worked together on a bunch of different like side projects that we never finished and never went anywhere. Um, but he's like a really talented designer and I'm a developer who's always really cared about design and wanted to get good at design. And it's worked really hard to get as to even the level that I'm at, which I don't consider myself to be as good as most real designers, but I think for, for a developer, I think my design skills are pretty good. Um, so we've kind of known each other for a long time and, uh, he had this idea to sort of maybe put together like a design book one day. Cause he kind of saw what I had done with my stuff and he thought, you know, man, it'd be really cool to like write a book on design. I think that would be like a really cool project to be able to say that I did. Um, so, uh, we kind of just like started working together to kind of grow his audience a little bit and kind of help, you know, him be seen as someone who actually like be recognized for his skills basically because, um, just because like you were a designer at some company, it doesn't mean people are going to 
buy your book. You know what I mean? You need to put in a lot of legwork to like really establish yourself as an authority on something and, and build goodwill and, and trust with an audience of people who, who like your stuff. So, um, something that worked really well for me with the building my audience and the other products I put out is just like sharing useful tips and stuff on Twitter. And it's something I picked up from West boss where a lot of people will, they'll post, they'll write like a blog post and link to it from Twitter, but that's just like one extra piece of friction for someone to actually get from Twitter to reading like your content. If you can figure out a way to like condense a blog post down into something that like fits in a tweet, you know, maybe along with an image so that like you can get some extra information in there. If you can condense it into something that fits right in someone's timeline as they're like scrolling through the engagement on it is going to be a lot higher and it's just like a lot more shareable and stuff too. So I thought like, why don't we try and like kind of take the same approach we've used for these programming tips and maybe put together like some good design stuff. Like here's like something here's like a common design mistake that developers make. And here's like what you can do instead that looks better. Um, so we spent about a year basically like doing that and refining that. And like the first tweet that we did, like did pretty well, like probably better than any tweet Steve had ever put out, but it maybe only got like 20 retweets or something. But like for someone with a small Twitter following, that's like a lot of engagement. Um, and slowly over time, just as we kind of like kept sharing these tips, like every couple of weeks, um, they started getting more attention and spreading more. And now it's very rare for like a, some tip like that, that we share on Twitter to get less than like two or 3000 likes or something. Um, so, uh, we just kind of like use that approach of just trying to be helpful on the internet and help people like write in their timeline, give them useful information. And, uh, that really helped kind of grow Steve's following and stuff. And, um, once we kind of hit like a critical mass with that, we kind of thought like, well, I think we've done the work necessary to probably be able to make it worth our while to try and sell something. Cause we got a, a big audience of people now. Um, originally like the idea was he wanted to do this kind of book by himself or he had an idea to try and do a book by himself. But what we had found is we had been collaborating so heavily on all the stuff up until this point. And I think our collaboration is what made this stuff really resonate with people because like he's a designer who isn't really a developer and he doesn't really make the same mistakes that developers make, but I'm a developer who like cares a lot about design. So I feel like I'm like, I'm positioned well to sort of act as like a bridge to like the, to someone like Steve who really knows his stuff together. We were able to sort of figure out like, okay, what is like a, a useful design principle and how can we pick like the perfect example that a developer is going to look at and think like, I've totally done that. Like this makes total sense to me. And I think we did a really good job of, of kind of collaborating together to, to create this content that really clicked for people. So, um, we've, you know, when it finally came time to, and Steve was talking about like, I actually want to get the ball rolling on some sort of book or something. Um, we talked about it and we thought, you know, I think we both thought that it will be probably more than twice as successful as it would have been if just one of us worked on it, if we kind of collaborate on it, like we've done with all the content so far. So that's when we decided let's like do this thing together. We'll kind of take the same approach that we've done with everything else. You're kind of like the designer, you know how to make stuff look awesome. And, um, I've done products and stuff before, so I'm bringing that to the table, but I also, you know, I, I think I'm a really good for 
trying to translate some of this information in a way that's going to really resonate with people and deliver it in a format that is really going to make sense um, to people that we're trying to get this information out to. Um, yeah. So then we just kind of started working on it together, um, announced it with a landing page, just kind of like every other product, and worked on it for three or four months full time after announcing the landing page. And then uh, we released it at the beginning of December. So, yeah. Very cool. Um, what would you say? Is it is it easier to work with a partner on something like this on a product or were there some things that were easier when you're solo? Um, I think maybe it depends on the person. For me, uh, I, I really like working with other people. Um, so it was fun to be able to work with Steve for a change instead of doing everything by myself, because historically, even the stuff that I've done by myself, I'm the sort of person who's always like nagging my friends for feedback about things or trying to get to hop on a call with someone and see if they'll help me figure out how to like get their opinion on what order some lessons should be in or how I should structure stuff. So, um, in the past I've always basically been begging people to, for their input and stuff. So being able to actually like collaborate on something with someone was nice, uh, for a change. And I think we have like very complementary skill sets. So, um, Steve, of course, did all the visual stuff. So he created all the example images and stuff. And uh, I think that book, I got to imagine that it has the highest like sentence to picture ratio of any book ever made, except for maybe a, a couple of kids books out there or something. Um, but there are, there's hundreds of like high fidelity, like UI examples and stuff that we had to kind of imagine and craft to make all, to kind of communicate all this stuff. I think so Steve I saw, did all the visual stuff. I think I saw you Sorry. tweet something about how, how you, uh, you felt bad for how, how much uh, effort Steve had to put into crafting these fake UIs. Yeah. Like he really didn't want to like reuse the same example multiple times if he could avoid it. So he had to keep inventing like fake ideas. And I think like the most draining part for him was not like actually making it look good, but it was like, I want like this image to make sense. Like if this is a podcasting app that we're going to make an example of, well then it should have the sort of elements and features and stuff that makes sense in a podcasting app. You know what I mean? So just always trying to figure out like fake content and like, how should an app like this actually work? It was basically like we had to design a product for every fake image, which was, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, I find that to be one of the most fatiguing things about creating anything like a blog post or, um, you know, product is, is coming up with kind of a, a fake application or some kind of scenario that you have to, you know, use as your example. That's kind of the decision fatigue around that is, is quite high. I found. Yeah, it's rough, especially when you're trying to make sure that like, you know, like, okay, it's just a fake example for a piece of content or something. So probably no one's going to care if it seems like a little bit contrived or some of the features maybe don't really make logical sense, but you still feel that pressure to kind of be like, ah, I want it to be like realistic. I want it to seem like something real because I want what I'm trying to teach to seem practically applicable to something real. You know, I don't want it to seem contrived. Yeah. So that can be a quite a bit of work for sure. Absolutely. You know, I'd love to chat about, uh, if you're up for it, maybe some of the, um, the numbers around, uh, your, your products and your launches. Cause I, th I think maybe something that people, um, who are thinking about getting into the product space aren't aware of is, um, you know, 
how how far these can go in terms of of income um you know i I think there's there there are a few examples we've seen here and there and i know you've got a a great blog post that recaps um the launch of your first product but um Mm -hmm. maybe share with us what uh what kind of numbers you've done on on your recent products yeah sure so um the first book that i did um you can definitely link up the blog post because i think it's a pretty good kind of walkthrough of the whole process but um I did like a three day long launch period for that. And that did just over $60,000 us in the first three days, um, which was way, way, way more than I ever expected it to do. Um, when I did the, the testing course, the TDD course, that was the next product that I did. Uh, if I'm remembering right, that did just over a hundred thousand dollars Canadian on the, on the first day, which was about $85,000 us on the very first day. Um, and products like this, they, they tend to have like a pretty big launch period and then they kind of like fall off pretty fast um but you know all these products of mine still get pretty regular sales that they don't all make a sale every day necessarily um but the testing course to this point i don't have like perfect data on this because i've done some some bundles and stuff with some of my other products and some of those numbers are mixed in here but it's definitely done like over five hundred thousand dollars us now total on just the testing course um and the the collections book, the very first product that I did, it looks like that's done just under $200,000 US total on its own. And uh, the advanced view component design course that I put out, that was like my third product. Um, that didn't do quite as well on launch day as the TDD course, but I kind of expected that. That was sort of, um, you know, it met my, exceeded my expectations actually, but that's done. I think on the first day it did like 60 or $70,000 us, which is still incredible. And it's done $230,000 lifetime. And that's just for the individual products. So these numbers don't include like I've done black Friday sales and stuff where I've said like, Hey, buy all three of these courses or just right. pick two that you want or whatever. So those numbers are not necessarily included here. Um, but yeah, so that's done 230 grand on its own. And then, um, refactoring UI, which is in, in, insane story. Um, I mean, we, we really built that up for a long time and really built Steve's audience and didn't really ask for anything in return for almost two years before we put together this product. Um, but that, that did $384,000 US on the first day. Um, it actually did $40,000 in revenue before we even announced that it was available for sale. Like we kind of silently deployed the website at four in the morning, went to bed for a couple hours. And when we woke up at eight in the morning, it had done $40,000 in sales. <laughs> wow. So that's done $968,000 US total now. And that's, that's, it'll be a month tomorrow. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, like, obviously I've, I've done really well with this stuff and I'm, it's kind of incredible the, the success that I, that I've had with it. And I'm of course really grateful for that. I don't think it's necessarily realistic to expect these sort of results, um, for, for everyone. But like, like you said, this is a good example, I guess, of, you know, the potential of it. Like you can, if you do it right and you you have something interesting to say and um, you have a big audience of people who are who are interested in what you're doing, uh, you can build a really good business doing this sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, 
on that note, and, and I, I know you've got to run, so we'll wrap up here pretty quick, but, um, you know, I'd love to know, um, if people want to get into this, uh, this space, creating courses, selling courses, whether it be books or screencasts, um, anything like that around programming, do you have any tips as to how to get started? What, what would be a good first step for somebody wanting to get into this? Yeah. So I think like the most important thing, and this is, I think that the step people try to shortcut a lot of the time is if you just like come out into a community with the, this kind of idea planted in your head that like my goal is to make a product and sell it. Um, people can kind of tell, you know what I mean? Like people, if you try too hard to really market yourself and try to get people on your list, um, people kind of see through it and, uh, they can tell that you sort of have ulterior motives. You know what I mean? So I think if you really want to be successful with this stuff, it's important that you genuinely, uh, derive satisfaction just from helping people, you know? And that's like with, what me and Steve did with the refactoring UI stuff. Like, yeah, Steve had this idea that one day it'd be cool to put together a book, but we were enjoying just putting the tips out there and just like seeing people get value from that stuff. And we didn't ask people to give us their email address or anything for, you know, a year and a half until we actually like decided that we were going to put a book together and, and put it out there. So I think the most important thing, um, is, you got to help people for free for a long time and you have to actually, you know, be doing it because you like doing it. Um, if you want to really have success with this stuff, I think like, I'm sure there's examples out there of people who have gone into this sort of thing with a very scientific approach and the whole goal all, all along was to extract as much money from people as possible. But all the people that I personally know who are the most successful are people who care more about just like making cool stuff that other people can benefit from, um, more than they care about the money. And, uh, I don't know. It's, um, so if you want to get started with this stuff, I think like the best place to start is figure out like, what do you have some like unique perspective on or some unique insight to share and try and put it out there and share it with people. And, uh, you know, don't just go out there and put out a landing page or some book idea as like your very first step because you're, what you're going to find is that no one signs up for it because no one knows who you are. And no one trusts you. Um, and it's not that they don't trust you because they think like you're some sort of bad person. It's just like you haven't earned their trust. You haven't developed a relationship with people and become, you know, someone who they look to to, to learn things from. Um, so the most important thing is to spend a long time, uh, you know, building that audience and kind of building that goodwill with people and sharing what you know, whether that's through blog posts or through screencasts or through live streaming or through creating a podcast or through sharing tips on Twitter or sharing tips on Instagram, anything that you can, you can think of to just kind of create value and put useful information out into the world, um, for free. Uh, that's, I think the most important thing to do, uh, if you want to actually succeed at this stuff, um, long-term. So, 
Absolutely. I would, I would agree with that for sure. I think, you know, going, going into something with just the intent of making money is the quickest way to not making money. There's, there's a long tail that you've got to expect with this, uh, this kind of activity. And I found that to be true. And I've, I've seen that both in successes and in failures, both my, myself and, and, and others as well. So I think that, uh, that advice is spot on. Well, Adam, um, I certainly want to say thank you for being on the podcast today and thanks so much for being, um, kind of a, a, a good guide for me as I've been doing uh, my own product stuff. I've taken a lot of your advice and it has been very valuable. So I certainly appreciate that. Um, anything you want to promote before we wrap up and then maybe how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks, man. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, if you are interested in any of the kind of the stuff that we we talked about in terms of like the products and stuff I have, um, go check those out. If you're interested in just kind of learning more about the process of doing this sort of thing, I think the blog post that we talked about that Ryan will link in the show notes, I think it was called like the $61,000 book launch that let me quit my job. Um, that has a lot of information and I think is a good story that kind of walks through this stuff. I gave a talk at microconf starter edition last year called nailing your first launch. So again, if you're interested in this stuff, um, I'll, I'll get a link for you on that one, but basically there's a, there's like an audience filmed video and there's a big summary of the talk that uh, Christian Jenko, who does like all these awesome microconf summaries put together. He basically goes through all the slides and watches the video and almost like turns into a big blog post. So, um, you can check, check that out too. And then, I mean, in terms of what else I'm doing, like this year, I kind of decided that um, I'm still running my course business and stuff like that. But um, I, I created this CSS framework called Tailwind CSS in uh, November 2017. And I kind of been working on that, you know, part time maintaining that, adding new features and developing it for the last year and a bit. And I decided that this year I kind of wanted to go full time on that and kind of get it to 1.0 and kind of grow the ecosystem around it and, and do some interesting things with that. So, um, right now I'm just kind of working full time on, on open source stuff, which is pretty cool. So, uh, if that sounds interesting to you, if you are interested in checking out a new CSS framework, uh, go check that out. I put together a new personal website last week where I kind of, I have a, one of my biggest pet peeves is blogs. I think we've all kind of like had it in, kind of brain been brainwashed to think that our personal websites should be blogs where all your content should be organized in reverse chronological order where your newest content is always at the top and your oldest content is at the bottom. I think, um, when I, when I realized that, you know, in like the nineties and the early two thousands, all the websites I used to visit, there were no blogs. There was just like websites, just like a site that someone put together that was organized in a logical way where the most valuable content was featured and like less valuable content was buried. And there weren't even necessarily articles per se. They're just pages that had information on them. So I I put a bunch of work into kind of restructuring my personal site to sort of uh, highlight some of the my favorite articles and conference talks and stuff that I've given. And I'm also using it now as sort of like a personal work journal. So I'm going to post the first update to that this week, but basically every week I'm just kind of sharing a short update on what I've been doing with Tailwind CSS or, or with my other business. So if anyone is interested in just kind of like following along with what I'm doing, you can, you can check that out at adamwevin.me. Yeah. So that's kind of it. Excellent. And, uh, contact, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch, maybe reach out on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Yeah. Yeah. Twitter would be good. So my Twitter handle is just at Adam Wathen. Um, that's probably the place that I check the most frantically and frequently. So 
um, yeah, if you have any questions or anything or whatever, reach out on Twitter. Excellent. And uh, of course, we will link up everything that Adam mentioned uh, in the show notes. All right, Adam, thanks so much for uh, for being on the podcast today. We'll catch you later. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. You'll be able to find show notes, including links to all the resources Adam mentioned at ecpodcast.io. If you've got any feedback about the show, if you'd like to suggest a future guest, or if you just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. You can say hi on Twitter at twitter.com slash coder podcast. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, and if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave a review and subscribe. And if not, no hard feelings. Until next time, happy hacking.